Welcome to No Compromise, where faith and reason fuse in conversation. Hello, Johnny. Hello, my love. Hello, everyone. So we'll recap what we've done for the last three episodes again. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been discussing a series of episodes that John, you had put out at the beginning of this year for the Christian Atheist. That's right. And it was called Hegel, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And those were episodes 35 through 42, and they were really, really deep. <laughs> and they were difficult to understand and kind of turned people off, it seemed like. Yes, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I would prefer to <laughs> do episodes that bring listeners in rather than drive them away. Right. But apparently- it was the latter that I managed to do with this series. <laughs> but at the same time, um, you feel it's vitally important for all of us to have uh, like a basic understanding of Hegel in order to make sense of the world. So now, because we have shown in the previous episodes that Hegelian thinking has permeated everything in our society. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And the point of emphasis there mm -hmm. is the thinking. Right. Because it is actually Hegel's logic that I would claim has overtaken the Western world. And that as my graduate advisor, Hermano Benchivenga said, yeah. we can't think in any other way anymore. Right. And that has radically changed the Western world. Mm -hmm. And I would say has infected like a virus. And this is a good time to be talking about the virus yeah. because <laughs> after the COVID thing, it has radically infected everything and everyone. Right. It is incredibly seductive. And I mean everyone, including the church, mm -hmm. uh, our academic arena, our media. Everyone thinks in a Hegelian manner. Right. And more than anything else, as we move forward, I want to try to emphasize that and show how true that is. Right. And it's not always a bad thing, as we pointed out last week. Right. The last two episodes. Exactly. So we talked about it in the Good Hegel that there is something valid mm -hmm. about Hegelian logic. Right. And it's a good and useful way to think about things. The problem is when it becomes the sole way of thinking, which yeah, we're going to talk us in about deep trouble. Yeah, we're going to talk about that later. Right. Okay, so we decided to vote the remainder of these episodes and the remainder of this year to discussing those episodes, huh? Yep. So, and these are sort of like a cliff note discussion episodes. Right. Yeah. And I thought of something in relation to this. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know that one of my favorite poets was John Donne. Mm -hmm. And I think about these Hegelian episodes that we did and coming to the end of them and realizing that I had like a whole ton more material yeah. to present. <laughs> and I remembered the line from John Donne. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, when thou hast done, he's talking to God the Father here. I think this poem was called Hymn to God the Father. He said, when thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. <laughs> and I have a vast amount of Hegelian material I would love to present, but I don't want to continue to drive our <laughs> listeners away. So we're only going to discuss it for the next three weeks. Yes. And then that's it. We're then hoping we to actually end this by the end of the year. Which is three more weeks. Right. And then move forward. Right. And then we'll move forward on some interesting things. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs>
Okay, so in our last four episodes, we covered our your introductory episode thirty five mm-hmm. and thirty six, which was Hegel the Good. Right. So keep in mind that it seems we keep running over the same content over and over. But like you said previously, it's like peeling layer after layer of an onion. Right. And the only way to begin to understand Hegel is to constantly visit the same material over and over again at increasing levels of complexity. Mm -hmm. And that's a way to understand him more clearly. And I really don't know of any other way to do it. And that corresponds to Hegel's logic, which we're going to actually look at today Mm -hmm. more closely. Yep. And another thing to keep in mind while we're discussing this is the notion of change is always good. Right. For Hegel, Mm -hmm. the idea that everything is change, that rationality is the underlying structure, and that the structure of rationality is ongoing change, was something that he borrowed from Mm -hmm. the philosopher Heraclitus. And we call this a process metaphysics. Mm -hmm. And it just means that change is the only reality. Mm-hmm. Everything is a process of change, and we've been exploring that at different levels, and we will continue to do so throughout this series. But it's worth remembering that for Hegel, there is nothing but change, yeah. and therefore change is good. It's always moving in an upward direction. Right, right. Another thing we should maybe stop here to talk about is the Hegelian logic, but it's hugely complex. Yeah. This is not an easy topic to discuss. Mm-mm. No. And yet, if we're going to make sense of Hegel, we need to deal with this topic before we even move any farther. And we began discussing this in earlier episodes by contrasting Hegelian logic with Aristotelian mm-hmm. logic. And so, a, a quick gloss on that before we move forward. One of the things we said is that Aristotelian logic is the logic of being. And we mean, in that sense, the being of the Western world that is the great I am, Mm -hmm. Western theism, God himself. And one of the major characteristics of God in the Bible is that he is changeless. Right. And so the logic of Aristotle is the logic of no change, right? It's It's the logic of being. Mm-hmm. And Aristotle's logic is characterized by laws, laws that are immutable, yeah. unchangeable. One of the most important of those is the law of non-contradiction, the idea that something cannot be both true and not true at the same, same time. time. Yeah, And that's enough to say about Aristotle to contrast with Hegel. Hegel's logic is the logic of becoming, not yeah. being, becoming, right. the logic of flux, of change. Hegel's is the logic of progress or of flow. And progress is something we just talked about a few moments ago, the idea that change is always good. Yeah. Right? So it's the notion of change that things are always in the process of flow, but it's also the application of a value to that change Mm -hmm. because it's always moving in the upward direction for Hegel. Right. And it's not a logic of laws like Aristotle's. It is a logic of process, and it is in many ways completely opposite to Aristotle's in that it embraces contradiction or opposition. And in fact, it is contradiction that drives Hegel's logic of progress. Yeah, yeah. 
But that is just a matter of causing a contrast between Aristotle and Hegel. We still said nothing about what Hegel's logic actually looks like. Right. And that is what I want to look at now for a few minutes before we do anything else Okay. in this episode. I think that's a good idea. So what we're about to look at is a bit of a schematic view. Most Hegelian scholars will tell you that this is not the proper way to look at Hegel's logic, that this doesn't represent it well. Mm -hmm. But it does, as a first approximation of the onion, right? An outer layer. So there's a lot more to this, but this is a very good way to understand Hegel's logic. Yeah. And we will draw some important lessons as we look at it. So the best way to think first, as a first gloss on Hegel's logic, is in terms of thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Right. Okay. So a thesis is a positive statement or state of affairs. And what comes next, anytime a thesis is put forward, is the denial of that thesis in the anti-thesis or antithesis. This is the negation, the opposition, the contradiction to the thesis. Mm -hmm. And then from this, Hegel says, from the constructive interaction of thesis with antithesis, mm -hmm. we get the synthesis or progress. This is a logic of value creation. So we create value by the interaction between the thesis, the positive statement, mm -hmm. and the antithesis, the negative statement. Right. We create new value. And then, as we said, this is a logic of process. Mm -hmm. The synthesis then becomes a new thesis, which then evokes a new antithesis. And so this is the ongoing process of Hegel's reasoning, okay. that things change in this way, that things develop in this way. And as we said, things progress in this way, mm -hmm. because it's always good for Hegel. This is the nature of reason itself. Now, it's worthwhile to present an example of this. I was just going to say to you, can you give us an example <laughs> of what you're trying to tell us? Right. So this is very, you know, very abstract at uh -huh. this point. So let's actually take an example from the realm of ethics okay. and see if we can make this concrete enough that we can understand what Hegel is talking about. Uh, okay. So let's think in terms of the abortion debate. And think about, as a thesis, the positive state of affairs that women are life givers, right? This is their natural state. Women are mothers. They are, in that sense, pro-life. Mm -hmm. Think about all of the female animals in nature. Mm -hmm. They get pregnant and they give life. It's what they do. Right. It's not a matter of choice. It's just a matter of what is the case. That is the thesis. Okay. Now, on the opposite side of that is the denial of the thesis, the antithesis or antithesis. This is the negation of life giving. Mm -hmm. So this is like like the destruction of the life. Right. And we might think of this in terms of the question, why do I have to accept this? And this is the abortion moment, right? Mm -hmm. It's when a woman decides, 
I don't accept this natural thesis. I deny it, and I choose to kill my child. So this is the antithesis. Okay. Now, note that from this, when we combine these two, mm-hmm. the thesis and the antithesis, yeah. we come up with a higher order understanding, and I use that in quotes, which we call the synthesis. It combines both positions, mm-hmm. and it says, I am pro-choice. That is, I can choose to give life. That is, I can choose the thesis. Mm-hmm. Or I can choose not to give life. That is the antithesis. It combines the two perspectives. So the pro-choice argument is the synthesis of the thesis and the antithesis. Okay. Now notice that this is a compromise position. It takes both positions and it puts them together and it comes up with what is a higher order understanding of the situation. Yeah. But in doing so, it denies the thesis and, in a sense, the antithesis. Yeah. And it says that both of these are valid positions, but that neither is, by itself, right or true. It is a compromise, and it's supposed to yield us a higher or a progressive understanding. Yeah. Now, we can talk about this later mm-hmm. in our discussion yeah. as to the reality and the real understanding of this or, or a better way to understand what's going on here Yeah, because I reject this entirely. But at least you can see in this example that what Hegel does is present a situation yeah. in which a compromise is the higher solution to a problem. Yeah. In other words, what it does is it denies entirely the idea that there are radical oppositions, that there is such a thing as a right and a wrong on the issue. The higher position takes the right and the wrong and combines them together. So a few points on this and we can move forward. Okay. Remember that this what Hegel calls the dialectic, this thesis, antithesis, synthesis, Mm -hmm. is the very process of reason itself. It is the way reality works. It is the way nature works. It is the way everything works in the world. There is nothing but change, and all change is for the better. Yeah. So in that sense, reason, the dialectic, always takes us to a higher understanding. It always ascends. Also notice that from the perspective of the synthesis, this higher notion, when you look at the thesis, it is always an earlier position Mm -hmm. and a position that must be overcome. So the synthesis is always progress. Yeah. And the antithesis is the gateway to the synthesis. Okay. And as a final gloss on this, that will sort of take us into where we're going next. You'll notice that for Hegel, the synthesis can take the place of the transcendent. That is, the idea that there is a real right and wrong to which we must give our allegiance. Instead, right and wrong and value Uh are simply a matter of the process itself. Right. Okay. So that gives us a good sense, I think, of what 
the Hegelian dialectic and the Hegelian logic that we've talked so much about, what it really looks like and how it proceeds. Yeah, exactly. All right. Okay. Now we want to turn the discussion to the next part of the series, which is Hegel the Bad. Yes. Now that we got all of that out of the way. And this discussion is going to cover episodes 37, 38, and 39 in your series. Correct. Yeah. All right. So I guess we can say Hegel the bad or how Hegel undermined transcendence. Does that sound right? Yeah. And that is the overarching theme of these three Hegel, the bad episodes, right? How Hegel undermines transcendence. Yeah, exactly right. And this is central to bad Hegel. Yeah. I mean, for me, that is what I mean by yeah. bad Hegel. Yeah. Hegel, I, I wouldn't say so much undermines transcendence because that almost seems passive. I would say that Hegel made an explanatory choice. Yeah. Like the scientists of the Enlightenment uh -huh. who chose to explain everything by reference to matter, yeah. right? They reduced everything to matter. Yeah. And so they just said, there is nothing but matter, and therefore everything that exists must be explained in terms of matter. Hegel did the same thing with mind. Yeah. And so he made an explanatory choice to rewrite all of reality as mind. Right. And both the Enlightenment scientism, both the Enlightenment scientists who, who were materialists and Hegel yeah. ended up taking the part for the whole. Right. That is, they said all that exists is matter for the Enlightenment scientists. Mm -hmm. And Hegel said, all that exists is mind. And in fact, as we know from our understanding of realism, yeah. both things exist and they must be understood as independent realities. Right. And if we take only one of those, we are missing half of what reality really is. Exactly. And in doing so, we can deny all sorts of things that are very important. Right. Okay, so with that whale-sized theme in mind, let's break it down into bite-sized pieces that we can easily swallow. How's that sound? Okay. <laughs> okay, so how does this sound? Your episode number 37, let's say it's Hegel as the origin to where we went wrong. Okay, that's the one, that's the one we're going to work on right now. Number 38, Hegel as the origin of radical extremism. Okay. And number 39, Hegel as the origin of the inversion of value. How does that sound? That sounds sound, good. It sounds good? Okay. Yep. So each of these episodes, I guess, could be broken into two points. One that talks about Hegel's logic, and the other point would be the death of, well, and for now, I'll just say like the death of something. Okay. Is that good? Okay. <laughs> right. And this has been very helpful for me. I, I realize that when we look at these episodes, the way we divide it here doesn't yeah. necessarily jump out at you, Yeah. but it will be an extremely useful schema to look at those episodes and make some sense of them, I think. Yeah. Starting with episode number 37, the two points that we want to, you know, that we were just saying about would be Hegel's logic and practical atheism. Okay. And the death of transcendence. Okay. What do you think of that? That sounds good. And Hegel, he set up the world for a radical extremism, didn't he? Right. And I think it's worth reading what I said in the episode itself. Okay, about go this. ahead. Why don't you do that? About, I don't know, five minutes in uh -huh. to the episode, I say something like this. 
Hegel, I believe, set up the world for a radical extremism. Right. And that, I think, is what we are living today. And it has gotten progressively worse and worse. Right. But I think we are beginning to reap the whirlwind right now. Yes, that's for sure. The world has turned upside down. And because so many of us have become infected with, with the Hegelian right, thinking, right, we miss how radical a difference mm -hmm. we are now living through. That's true. But the world today has turned literally upside down <laughs> from the world before Hegel. Yeah. It would be utterly unrecognizable to people that lived back then, before Hegel, to see the world we are living in now. Right. They would think that they had turned into upside down world, <laughs> like the Isaiah passage. Right. Woe to those who take evil for good and good for evil, light for dark and dark for light. Right. We are really living that right now. And the reason we are living that, and this is why I am so passionate about, <laughs> about this point. Right. Why we have to understand Hegel, because he has infected all of us, including, and I mean Jenny and I too. Right. We think in a Hegelian manner. And unless we understand why we think that way, yeah. we're never going to be able to reverse our thinking. Right. And so my goal in particularly these three episodes of The Christian Atheist, mm -hmm. as we go over them here in No Compromise, is to try to help all of you see the way in which you are Hegelian thinkers. Right. And, and if I can do that, yeah. then I, I think we will have managed to have done something worthwhile right. in this. And maybe have some place to start right. a change. So let me f just finish there. Yeah, go ahead. Um, Hegel, I believe, set the world up for a radical extremism. And this is the way in which he set us up. An imbalanced value inversion. And there's the Isaiah passage again. Mm -hmm. From which we have been unable to recover. Right. Even though Hegel himself, as we said in the Good Hegel episode, was not in most ways an extremist or a radical. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is what we hope to accomplish this time. Right. And I pray to God that we do. Okay. So let's go back to Hegel the Bad, episode number 37. And here you talk about Hegel's logic and practical atheism and the death of transcendence. So Hegel's logic and practical atheism, the theme of this whole series is that the foundation of bad Hegel is the denial of transcendence. Yes. And, right. Yeah. And in its own way, we've talked repeatedly about this notion of inversion. Yeah. But that is exactly what the inversion is. Because yeah. the Western world always believed from Plato forward that reality existed beyond our current world and that there was a greater reality than us. Right. Hegel reversed that. He inverted that. The only reality is the world in which we live. Right. And there is no reality beyond that. Right. That was a radical inversion. And we are still living that today. Mm -hmm. And most of us are buying it at a level that we don't even understand. Yeah, yeah unconsciously. Right. And, and that is the denial of transcendence. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you say the collapse of being into reason in this episode. Can you explain 
what collapsing being into reason even means. Right. So here we go again with the onion. Uh-huh. So we've talked about this before, but right. we're ready now, I think, to understand a little better what we mean by this collapsing being into reason. If you remember in an earlier episode of No Compromise here, we talked about the metaphysics of realism. Uh-huh. The idea that we as human beings understand our world in terms of two categories, mind and matter, Mm -hmm. right? We believe that there are two kinds of realities, that there is this material reality all around us. But we also know ourselves as thinking things, and those thinking things are different from the natural world around us. There's something unique about thinking things. The Greeks understood this long before the New Testament was out, Mm -hmm. and certainly the Old Testament as well presented human beings as distinct, as unique in the natural world. But there's also something more, and this becomes very important, because it's not just mind and matter. Because as soon as we admit the uniqueness of mind, of human reason, We also admit that the mind points beyond our world. The mind points to a reality that is greater than anything we see around us or than ourselves. And this is transcendence. In some way, this pointing must be explained. Yeah. And in the Western world, the traditional world, the world in which realism ruled, we called this pointing to this this indexicality transcendence okay. reality god you know this reality that is beyond us that we're constantly trying to reach but we never quite reach that is god that's the mystery that we're always seeking to understand but hegel can't refer to transcendence because all that exists for him is mind and so His way of explaining that pointing is simply to say that mind is pointing to itself. And that's just another way of talking about imminence. Mm -hmm. So there are two ways to talk about imminence. Either matter is all that there is, and that is there's nothing beyond matter, no transcendence, and then everything must be explained in terms of matter. That's the scientism that Kant opposed from the Enlightenment. Yeah. Or we choose Hegel's way, and we say that everything is mind, and there's no such thing as matter or transcendence, and therefore, mind must simply point to itself. Right. And then we see this whole process of thesis, antithesis, synthesis making sense. Right. Because it's just this self-contained process going on over and over and over again, pointing never outside itself, Mm -hmm. but only to itself. So that is the essence of imminence and transcendence. Okay. All right. That's Um, really good. And there are no real barriers. Right. Because mind is everything. No real barriers, neither material, nor ethical, nor spiritual. Right. And hopefully we can see, and we'll point more clearly to this as we move forward. Yeah. That this lack of barriers is is the problem. Right. Because mind becomes all-encompassing, and there are no barriers against which we come up. And therefore, 
as Dostoevsky said, all things are permissible. Right. And so would you say it's like taking the part for the whole? It is taking the part for the whole. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because by denying that there's anything outside of mind, there is nothing against which we can buck up. Right. There, there are no limits. And that's not the world that human beings live in. And so pretty much from this, that's where most of our errors are flowing, huh? Yes. Right. Every other trouble, every other problem. Exactly right. Because we see this world in which every barrier, mm-hmm. every law, every tradition is being transgressed. Right. Why? Because we need to progress. Right. Right. And just a quick example on this. We can think about the nature in our lives. If you remember back when we were kids, mm-hmm. the whole idea of gay rights came up. Right. And the the idea that, oh boy, well, some people, and you, we were just talking today on our walk about James Dobson, Right. Coming to the conclusion that, hey, in fact, probably many of us are drawn to the same sex by our biological makeup. Mm -hmm. And that was a hard thing for Christians to swallow. Right. But Dobson swallowed it and Mm -hmm. I swallow it completely. I think that may very well be the case. Mm -hmm. So we came to accept that that was the case. And so we said to ourselves, okay, so we'll allow what? What was it? Civil, Civil unions. unions. Right. Then then that's okay. Mm-hmm. But then that became the thesis. See, right. it was the antithesis. We rejected that. Said, right, okay, this is real. No, it's not. And then we said, okay, it, it is. Right. And then that becomes the new thesis. And then that becomes challenged. And right. suddenly we're not willing to accept the idea of civil unions. We want actual marriage equality. Right. And so they push for that. And then in 2015, we get Obergefell versus Hodges, mm-hmm. and that becomes the new thesis. Right. Okay. So now what? So now we keep pushing everything. There is no such thing as male or female. Right. And therefore, the whole, the whole back, it just all ends up one thing after another. And the process goes on. Mm-hmm. And we have denied, we see when we look back, we have denied any reality to ethics whatsoever that there is such a thing as an actual boundary between right and wrong. Right, right. So let's get back to the episode where you start talking about practical atheism versus creedal atheism. Right. And in its own way, this is an important development from what we've been talking about mm-hmm. in terms of Hegelian logic. And real quick, that's something you discussed in episodes 28 through 32 of The Christian Atheist. Right. We tried to talked, define atheism. Yeah, what is an atheist? Right. That that might be worth listening to. Right. I think if you want a clear explanation mm-hmm. of what we're talking about here, yeah. the best thing I can do is point you to those episodes. But again, <laughs> they're pretty, yeah, they're pretty, pretty dense <laughs> and difficult. But if I can sum up what I was saying there, you'll yeah. see that there is an application of Hegelian logic to it. So what is practical atheism versus creedal atheism? Because I want to make the case that Hegelian atheism is a type of practical atheism versus creedal atheism. Uh And that creedal atheism is actually not that big a deal. It's easy to defeat. In fact, it's self-defeating. Yeah. But that practical atheism is being represented most clearly by the Hegelian dialectic. Okay. And has pervaded our society. 
So on a quick gloss, let's say this. Yeah. The creedal atheist is someone who says, I believe, and there's the creed, right? Mm -hmm. Because credo is I believe in Latin. A creedal atheist is someone that says, I believe there is no God. Yeah. The problem with this for them is that most creedal atheists hang on to transcendence. Okay. Right? And we talked before about- Sam uh, Harris. Sam Harris, Mm -hmm. right? And Sam Harris wants to keep all of the sort of Christian values that come along with belief in God while discarding belief in God. Right. That is creedal atheism. Yeah. That's the idea that we can hold on to the values of transcendence and still get rid of God. Right. And I find that to be, after my analysis in those episodes, a position that is almost ridiculous. Right. It cannot be held. To, to, to show the flip side then is what I call practical atheism. And practical atheism is I act as if there is no God. Right. It's not just what we, quote, believe, right, in the creedal sense, yeah. what I affirm. It's how I actually act. It's how I live my life. A practical atheist lives right. as if there is no God. In that sense, Cain was mm-hmm. a practical atheist. Yeah, He knew there was a God. He believed there was a God. So he was a creedal theist. Right. And yet, he acted he, as yeah. if there was no God. Yeah. And in the episode, I call this the urge to purge God from our thoughts and our actions. So the practical atheist is actually someone who is just doing what Hegel did. Yeah. Taking transcendence away. Right. Like Psalm 14.1. Like Psalm 14.1. The fool hath said in his heart, and the heart for the Bible is the whole man. Not just matter of, of believing in your head one thing or another, but how you act, mm-hmm. what you think, and how you act. It sums up the whole man. Right. And the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Yeah. And this is Hegelian, what I would call Hegelian atheism. Right. And, this and is, go ahead. Hegelian atheism can very well be a creedal theism. Mm hmm. You can believe that there is a God and yet act completely as if there is no God. Right. So the practical atheism is the form that's pervading our age. Correct. Yes. Like like you said, Hegelianism is pervading our age. Right. And it's being driven by the Hegelian logic Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because there is no God in thesis, antithesis, synthesis. That is just the process going on around us. There's nothing outside the process, nothing driving the process, nothing to which the process applies other than itself, which is another layer of the onion in our understanding of what we mean by absolute idealism. Because it is completely divorced from anything outside itself. It is absolutely the process of reason itself and nothing outside that. Mm -hmm. And that is dramatically opposed to the Western view of God. Right, right. And then I remember from the last episode, Hegel talked about how his philosophy would go bad Mm -hmm. and it would talk about spirit. 
but it's almost like it would talk the talk, but not walk the walk. Right. Almost like Second Timothy chapter three, verse one. Yes. You know, which says, which um, says they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Right. So let's that actually would be, go ahead. Go ahead. Let's actually play with that a little yeah. bit. And think of this in terms of Hegel's logic. Right. If we look at theism, the belief in God, and that meaning the action of belief in God as well. Right. Right. This would be this would be able, right, in that. So actual belief in God would be theism, and acting as if you believe in God is theism. And that is the thesis. And that thesis inevitably leads to the denial of that thesis in the antithesis or atheism. And my claim is that when you join those two together, you get the synthesis of practical atheism. The denial of transcendence while retaining, as Hegel said in Uh Good Hegel, spirituality while denying the power thereof. And also retaining the notion of ethics while denying that there is any transcendent basis for them. Yeah. So this is another application of Hegelian dialectic, Hegelian logic to this situation. And I think it helps make clear what it is we're talking about a little bit. Yeah. And also transitions us well to what we're going to talk about next. Yeah. Okay. So Hegel's logic and practical atheism. Okay. Yeah. So that leads us to the the next part of this episode, which is the death of transcendence. Right. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, I yeah. mean, we've been talking about this from the very beginning right? of the whole episode, not just this episode, but the whole series. Yeah. And like we said at the beginning, it overshadows the entire- Yeah. It is everything. Yeah, exactly. It is, it is the whole point of Hegel as bad. Right. The death of transcendence, because it's taking the part for the whole- is the structure of all that is bad about Hegel. And it only gets worse mm-hmm. as time goes on, as we'll talk about when we get to the episode, I'm not sure which one it is, we talk about the death of God. Mm-hmm. But the death of transcendence really is the whole ball of wax. And so this first episode, dealing with the death of transcendence, sets us up for what comes next right. in the next two episodes. So you said earlier that you wanted to discuss the trans- you know, transcendence and eminence. Right, and we explained transcendence in our previous episode. But um, if you want to review it, here, okay, and, and and when you do, if you could also contrast it right away with imminence, okay, yeah, yeah, and and even explain what does imminence even mean, just briefly, okay. So by definition, transcendence is that which cannot be reached. It is that which is beyond us. Mm-hmm. It transcends us. That's literally what it means. It's beyond us. It is ideal. It is changeless. That's not the world we live in, right? And we've Mm -hmm. said this repeatedly. We live in the Shadowlands. And that's why Hegel's logic, which is the logic of Shadowlands, is useful and helpful. As long as it's kept within context and subjected to the reality that is beyond us, yeah. the transcendent reality, because the transcendent is ideal and changeless. I am the Lord God. I yeah. change not. So the transcendent is the denial 
or the limit of the dialectic, of Hegel's reasoning. It literally is the denial that Hegel's logic is absolute, right? Because we called this absolute idealism before. Mm -hmm. That's the idea that it's simply self-contained. And God stands outside that. He is transcendent to that, transcendent to our world, transcendent to our thinking. Mm -hmm. We cannot reach him. Imminence, then, is just the opposite of that. It's taking the part for the whole. It's saying that there is nothing outside of our experience, of the world around us, and it denies, in that sense, all of that indexicality that our minds point to. Mm -hmm. So the idea that mathematics has a reality outside of our minds is utterly ridiculous to the Hegelian dialect. Okay. All there is is reason for him. And there is nothing that put reason in place. There is nothing that brought reason to be, right? There is only reason itself working out the process. And that is imminence. And of course, imminence on the opposite side, when we talk about the scientism of the Enlightenment, is the idea that matter is all that exists. Right. And to the rational human being who has who lives in this actual world in which we live, transcendence is the flip side of everything that we live. Because everything that we live, everything that we do, points outside us to something bigger than ourselves. Right. Okay, so that kind of reminds us of what we talked about in the previous episodes, that Hegel, he was responding to Kant, who was responding to this enlightenment idea that man has all the answers and that everything can be known and predicted. Yes. Right. And that, in that sense, is Hegel trying to reestablish the idea that everything can be known. Maybe not by individual human beings, because for for Hegel, there's nothing special about humans. humans. Right. We are just one manifestation of the reason that underlies everything. Right. So there's nothing unique about us. Whereas Kant says, wait a second, there is something unique about human beings. We are rational and the rest of nature isn't. Yeah. And so Hegel, while preserving Uh the Enlightenment's emphasis on the value of reason, undermines human beings. Right. And again, sorry to bring this up again, but this is another issue in our current world. It's like the radical environmentalists believe that human beings are a cancer on our planet. Yeah. They believe that the rational world around us would probably be better without human beings because we destroy the world. And this is itself a contradictory position. Because if we are, as the radical environmentalists would think, Mm -hmm. either functions of material, Mm -hmm. that would be the scientism view, we're just material like everything else, then we are just a part of nature. Or if we are strictly mind, as Hegel would say it, then we are still just a part of the process. And therefore, anything that we do should be good, just like everything else. And yet, they want to say that we are something unique, while denying that we are are something unique. (laughs) 
<laughs> and and in doing so, what they claim is that we are this sort of cancer on the planet, and the rational world would be better without us. So we are not unique or special. Instead, we are a threat to the right, world, right? And therefore, we should be destroyed. And I think that this ethic underlies an awful lot and explains an awful lot of the world in which we are currently living, mm -hmm. especially leftist environmentalism and the the structure of the political world in which we are living right now, yeah. and the and the strange attempts yeah, to make energy more expensive. Yeah to hurt human beings while claiming you're trying to help human beings. Right. It is a strange, strange is, world really that we is. live in. So pretty much, we, you know, we, we talked about the death of transcendence here, but at the same time, it's the death of truth, huh? Yes, and truth itself is being undermined. Mm -hmm. Science itself is mm -hmm. being undermined. And we've talked about this before too. Like when we walk around our neighborhood and we see all these signs mm -hmm. amongst our leftist neighbors saying yeah. science is real, right. when they are in the process of undermining science, science at almost every level. <laughs> right. And right. truth. Right. Okay. So you see at this point in the episode that, let me quote you, it says, transcendence is not so easily banned. It seems no matter how successfully we deceive ourselves into believing in the death of God. Right. And this, I guess, is a good place to stop. Mm -hmm. But the idea here is that transcendence is not something we can just simply choose to deny because it is a feature of human rationality right. itself. And so when we engage in the Hegelian dialectic mm -hmm. and deny the transcendent, we necessarily have to lie to ourselves right. or to rewrite our experience in terms of something that we can never live. Right. We can't live as though there isn't a reality beyond us that we can't grasp mm -hmm. because we can't see the whole world. We can't grasp all of the information that is necessary for us to grasp to really understand the world around us. It's much bigger than we're able to. And our experience constantly points us to realities yeah. that are outside our grasp, like right. the idea of a mathematical unit or infinity right? or the origin and beginning of the universe and beginning of time itself. Mm -hmm. These are concepts that expand beyond our capacity to understand, and yet we have to be able to accept them right. on faith right. in order to be able to make sense of our world at all. Mm -hmm. And so if we reject transcendence, we end up rejecting rationality itself, so. and we lose science, right. and we lose our understanding of we we lose our ability to even claim that we understand that we aren't rational right? <laughs> or right. That, that our world isn't rational or is rational. I don't even know how to say it. Yeah. <laughs> didn't, didn't Chesterton, didn't he say something? Relevant to this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. he sure did. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's end with a quotation from G.K. Chesterton that discusses uh, the acceptance on faith mm -hmm. of the fundamental mystery of transcendence. Yeah. In contrast to the futile effort of imminence to claim absolute knowledge in Hegel. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. 
In this quote, the acceptance of transcendence, Chesterton calls mysticism. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here's the quote. I forget which one of his books this came from, actually. Mysticism keeps men sane. As long as you have mystery, you have health. When you destroy mystery, you create morbidity. The ordinary man has always been sane because the ordinary man has always been a mystic. He has permitted the twilight. He has always had one foot in earth and the other in fairyland. He has left himself free to doubt his gods, but free also to believe in them. <laughs> he has always cared more for truth than for consistency. His spiritual sight is stereoscopic, like his physical sight. He sees two different pictures at once and yet sees all the better for that. And there's that mm -hmm. Kantian notion of realism and idealism mm -hmm. at the same time. Yep. Back to Chesterton. Thus, he has always believed that there was such a thing as fate, but such a thing as free will also. Thus, he believes that children were indeed the kingdom of heaven, but nevertheless ought to be obedient to the kingdom of earth. Mm -hmm. He admired youth because it was young and age because it was not. It is exactly this balance of apparent contradictions that has been the whole buoyancy of the healthy man. The whole secret of mysticism is this, that man can understand everything by the help of what he does not understand. The morbid logician, and here we have Hegel mm -hmm. and Hegelian logic, yeah. seeks to make everything lucid and succeeds in making everything mysterious. The mystic allows one thing to be mysterious, it would be God, mm -hmm. and everything else becomes lucid. And there you have it. Mm -hmm. And that's from Chesterton's Orthodoxy. Oh, that's from Orthodoxy. Okay, I was thinking it was from The Everlasting Man. Perfect. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason. Respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian. <laughs>